After the smashing success of Blood Feast, Herschel Gordon-Lewis and David F. Friedman had to act fast. With $60,000, almost triple the budget for Blood Feast, from investor Stanford Kohlberg, they set off to film a follow-up to their first gore film only four months after the theatrical release of Blood Feast. Lewis took inspiration from the recent Broadway revival of Brigadoon, the musical about a mysterious Scottish town that appears for one day once every hundred years. But instead of a town appearing once every hundred years to bring joy and love, this one would be about a town of southern confederates that had been wiped out by Union soldiers during the American Civil War. They would come back to life 100 years to the day after they were killed to seek vengeance on any and all northerners who happened upon their town. Lewis and Friedman didn't just want to up the gore from Blood Feast. They also had something to prove. Blood Feast had been described by critics and industry people alike as a fluke. They set out to do two things different than Blood Feast. One was to have production value. And two was to pay attention to the performances. So Lewis and Friedman set out to the small town of St. Cloud, Florida, and enlisted the entire town to help them film the movie that we are watching tonight, 2000 Maniacs! It's that by video! Woo! It's time to watch a movie you never seen. There might be some ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles and there'll be tears. Watch another movie for about 600 years. It's time for death by video. Time for death by video with Phil. Hello, I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham Singh. Welcome back to another episode of Merry Movie Mayhem. Um, so guys, we're going to be watching uh, Herschel Gordon-Lewis's and David F. Friedman's follow-up to Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs from 1964. Yeah, 64. So, before we get into the film, has anyone seen anything interesting in the last week since we recorded? Phil. All right, so uh, death by video favorite uh, licorice pizza is confirmed. Yes, one hundred percent. We all saw it. We all loved it. We're all on board. We're all on board. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this was second time viewing, first time in seventy millimeter. Glorious seventy millimeter at the Toronto International Film Festival Lightbox downtown in Toronto. Sorry, it just it's it's great to see it on film. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Anything else? Phil? It's been a pretty slow week. Um, it's been, you know, it's been a week since we last recorded. Uh, the other movie I watched was Sidney uh, Lumet's uh, sprawling 1981 movie, Prince of the City. Oh, I've seen that film. Yeah, I like how you pronounce it Lumet and not Lumet. Yes, it's Lumet. <laughs> yeah, but Lumet is but, but cool I, too. I just feel compelled to. Yeah, that's yeah. good. Uh, what do you think of Prince of the City? I liked it, uh, but Tree Williams not a leading man. <laughs> no, no, he's not. It's one of those films where, like, I, I remember I watched it a year ago, and I think I would have liked it a lot more if it had starred someone other than Treat Williams. Yeah, I, I think that's the consensus on the movie, and people who think it's a masterpiece are like, you know what? People would more people would watch this movie if it didn't have Treat Williams. Yeah, Treat Williams is a weird. I remember in the '90s he was rumored to take over the role of Ash in Evil Dead in like part four and it was only like a an april fool's day prank but the entire internet was like no (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so so down on that 
Um, anything else beside uh, Prince of the City and Licorice Pizza? That's all I've seen that's good. <laughs> yeah, and Licorice Pizza is amazing. Well, we can all yeah. talk about how much we enjoyed it, but uh, I highly recommend, folks, it's only in theaters. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson doing the Lord's work and ensuring that, like, the way to see a movie is the way you're supposed to see a movie on a big screen with a room somewhat full of people because of COVID uh, regulations that we have going on right now, but still fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I did watch a, uh, you did mention Nudie Cuties last week, and I did end up watching one on the Criterion Channel of all places. Yeah, you were telling me it's a Doris Wishman joint? Doris Wishman joint. It was done under a nom de plume, of course. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was called Indecent Desires. Yeah, I think you were telling me before we recorded, quite boring. Yeah, quite boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you go back and watch Nudie Cuties, I've only seen a handful. Uh, they're not exciting. Yeah. No matter how much you love buxom women, you might be bored. Yep, bored to tears. Yeah. All right, Kit, what have you seen since we last recorded? Uh, I've seen a few things. Yeah. So I did watch, um, sorry, just pulling up the list Licorice right here. Pizza? I did watch Licorice Pizza, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I also watched uh, Police Story 2. Nice, nice classic Jackie Chan film finishing it off you know a lot of people um like they say oh this is clearly not as good as police story uh the first one i mean what they mean is like it's still great but uh, you know it's not as coherent or something like that it's like a second slice of pizza basically i sort of liked it better almost it doesn't have as big stunts yeah uh, although it does, you just don't appreciate them uh, as much. Like Jackie Chan um, going down that kind of a tube, and there's like an explosion in the tube, and I'm like, that doesn't look safe. I That's- think he learned his lesson where it's like, <laughs> all right, I'll do this once, but never again. Um, so that was uh, that was good. Of course, uh, Maggie Chung, um, just uh, developing a solid crush on Maggie Chung lately, I think. She's a solid actress. Um, then I watched, uh, rewatched They Live. Nice. I hadn't seen some in classic Carpenter with Roddy Piper. Classic Carpenter with uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, and of yeah. course Keith David. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a, just an excellent film all around. I love Lots how North America collectively just accepts Roddy Piper as being Scottish, despite the fact he has no accent and is actually from Saskatchewan. Uh, he's from Saskatoon. Yeah. yeah. In fact, his Canadian accent does come out a couple times when he's got to do some line readings. Yeah. I don't remember them offhand. And then also, like, did he ever try to do a fake Scottish accent? No. Okay, because I swear that there <laughs> a bit of a, a bit of Scottish comes out. A little broke. No. Yeah, a little bit. Um, then we saw the uh, the aforementioned licorice pizza, and then uh, Blood Simple. I, I went back and rewatched that. Nice, the first Coen Brothers film, also the first film for mm-hmm. one Francis McDormand. Now, did you watch the original or the uh, director's cut that was released a few years? ago? I watched whatever uh, was on Hollywood Suites. Okay, I don't know because this is interesting. It's it. one of those director's cuts that actually has uh, is actually shorter than the original. It's a it's amazing for like a debut film how mm-hmm. uh, polished it looks. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know if you remember the scene. Like there's a scene where they they uh, sort of pan up along the bar. Yeah, the camera goes in the bar and it goes over. And it the goes drunk. over the drunk who's on yeah. there. Just stylish, yeah. just cool. Yeah. Is it even available? Is the original cut even still available? I don't think it is. No, no. I think because I think Criterion released it, and I think the Criterion edition only had the uh, director's, director's cut. cut. Yeah, yeah. We should also point out, like, it's probably that one mm-hmm. then, because Hollywood Suites acquired a lot of stuff from uh, Criterion and yeah. Janus Films, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to point out that like part of the Coen Brothers being able to make such a slick, solid like first picture came from their like early work with uh, Sam Raimi, because Sam Raimi. Um, editing the Evil Dead, his editing assistant was, I think it was Joel Cohen or Ethan Cohen, one of the Coens, and that's how they met and they actually all lived together. And so, like, 
the Coens actually learned a lot from Sam Raimi's like mo- mobile camera style. And in fact, the way that they accomplished the uh, the camera moving down the bar and going over the drunk was the same way that Sam Raimi did the evil the evil force rushing through the woods in Evil Dead. Oh, neat! Yeah, which is how um, you basically take a two by four and you bolt the camera to the center of it. And you have it held by different sides, and it actually makes it a smooth thing, so you can do a smooth glide without a crane or a dolly or anything. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, and then finally, I uh, I went and checked out um, Wes Anderson's uh, The French Dispatch. So I watched yeah. both Anderson Brother mm-hmm. uh, films. Uh, yeah. Boys are doing well. I did not have a chance to watch uh, Paul W.S. Anderson's latest, uh, Monster Hunter 2, or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, the Anderson boys are thriving and doing well, and it's good yeah. to see. I'm sure their parents are proud of them. Exactly. Uh, the French Dispatch was a lot of fun. I yeah. don't get why people are so down on um, Wes Anderson's aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works for him. He tells his stories within that framework. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, it's the kind of film where you know you, you'll have to see it multiple times before you get everything because every single frame is packed full of so much stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, that it's not possible to get it all at once. And yeah. it's 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 almost like impressionist paintings, the way mm-hmm. it's uh, kind of realized. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as me and Phil can attest, because we had to watch it from the front row. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. That was intense. I'll put it that way. Uh, anything else, Kit? No, that's it. That's it. Cool. I'll go on to my stuff quickly. Um, so I watched, after Liquor's Pizza, I watched 1982's Parasite, directed by Charles Band. I've been reading his... Uh, memoir right now and it uh it was a fun movie it's it's a bit slower movie than i would have liked but i can totally see that like in 3d because it was like the first 3d of that whole 3d revival in the 80s it was the first to actually use stereoscopic uh filming techniques so not the red blue but the actual like polarized lenses for 3d um so he he did that and i can say like if this was in 3d it would probably be a lot more exciting because there's a lot of like broom handles coming towards or like guns being pointed out at the screen uh but still fun was had by all it started a very very young demi moore in her first leading role. Um, then I followed that up with 1994's uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme classic and Raul Julia classic, Street Fighter. I have not seen this film in almost 20 years. No, definitely 20, over 20 years. Um, how did it hold up? It held up a lot better than I remember. It was way more fun than I was remembering. I think it just became a collective thing where like we, we as a society, just decided this movie is bad, and so therefore we're not going to to like it but like watching it now I'm like man this movie is so fun it's so awesome it's so engaging it's got a ton of style um van damme you realize it's truly an ensemble movie like he's actually not the lead of the movie which i kind of forgot about like watching it now he plays guile right yeah. which was always a strange choice because that's the very american character mm-hmm. in the video game and he's very not american yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also interesting because i haven't seen it uh since it was released on video and in video i think ken would be the perfect character for him but. I know, but they didn't go down that route. They wanted him to be Guile, the guy leading the mission. Um, but the interesting thing is that there's a, a scene that I always remember from the videotape and from the movie where, like, you know, Van Damme shows him, like, his muscle, and he, you can see the American flag tattoo on his arm. But the problem, but the interesting thing is because this is the original uh, theatrical aspect ratio, which is not 16 by 9, it's uh, Cinemascope, but the problem with that is it wasn't shot anamorphic, so they cropped a uh, 16 by 9 image down to that. Oh, no. So, But the thing is, this is how it was actually meant to be framed, but you actually don't see his American flag tattoo on the muscle. So I was like, oh, I totally forgot that that wasn't in the theatrical version because I haven't seen it the, the well, I haven't seen it in a theater since 1994 when it came out. Uh, following that up with, I, watched, I rewatched from uh, a film that I haven't seen in 16 years now. Uh, yeah, 16 years. John Waters' This Filthy World, which is a stand-up um, 
film that he did that was actually directed by Jeff Garland, uh, where, ah. where he basically just went through his... Uh, his Sorry, folks, we had a brief technical difficulty. I'll just finish up my uh, films that I've seen. Uh, this Filthy World, the John Waters stand-up, which was awesome. I watched the 1936 adaptation of H.G. Wells' Things to Come. Uh, really, really great 1930s science fiction film. Fantastic special effects. I was enraptured for all 90-something minutes of it. Uh, really good. And again, it's like it was made during the era in which fascism was rising. So it actually kind of nicely echoed this era where like you could see the rise of populist politicians saying like, we need this. Like, don't listen to those people. Listen to us. We're the best. And science just being like, you're science. Screw science. Science never done anything good for us. Uh, and then I finished up uh, my uh, movie viewing since we last recorded with Santo and Dracula's Treasure, a delightful uh, El Santo picture that I watched last night from Rene Cardona Sr., who is the father of Rene Cardona Jr., who directed Night of a Thousand Cats. Um, unfortunately, I, wa- I didn't realize the DVD I have has the terrible new dubbing, and there's no option for it. There's no Spanish option or even the original English dubbing from the 1960s. So it was a very a bit jarring to hear, like, poorly mic- audio-mixed voices over El Santo and uh, and the like. But uh, it was a fun film all around. Get- apparently, Dracula was buried in Mexico City. Didn't know that. Um, yeah. All right. So without further ado, we're going to watch 2000 Maniacs. We'll be right back. If you're looking for more horror outside of the mainstream, look no further than Unsung Horrors, a podcast about underseen horror movies. I'm Lance. And I'm Erica. Every other week, we'll cover a horror movie with fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. We'll even give you double feature recommendations to pair with the movies we discuss. From gothic to shot on video, from slashers to comedies, from giallo to J-horror, we'll cover all the subgenres. So join us as we unearth these hidden gems of horror. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, all at Unsung Horrors, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And that was 2000 Maniacs. Yeah. Woo! So, uh, out of all the film, all the, out of the, all the films of the Blood Trilogy, uh, this is actually Herschel Gordon Lewis's favorite. Um, and he actually sings the theme song, not because he wanted to be a singer, but because it wouldn't cost them anything. It's a hell of a theme song, too. Yeah. So, um, I'll just dig, dive into like my notes here. Uh, I mean, this film was the inspiration for a couple things. The band Ten Thousand Maniacs. If you remember them, they took their name from it. Yeah. Um, the film Multiple Maniacs by John Waters. The title was an homage to, to 2000 Maniacs. Um, there's even a remake of this film in the aughts, uh, directed by Tim Sullivan, produced by Eli Roth, called 2001 Maniacs. Wow, so was, a sequel. No. <laughs> but it's funny. They, they updated some stuff in it So where they had like, oh, now black people come to town and there's a gay character. So they're like, well, how do we seduce a gay character? <laughs> just bad and then they even made a sequel to that called 2000, uh, 2001 Man- Maniacs Field of Screams about where they go on a baseball tournament for some reason they're not as good as this film but yeah so uh, in the opening scenes of this film Connie Mason so we have some returning actors from Blood Feast both Connie Mason let me just scroll down in my notes uh, Connie Mason who was the female lead of Blood Feast Returns this time playing Terry Adams um, and William Kerwin uh, returns playing Tom White he played the uh the not too bright detective in Blood Feast, and now he's back kind of as a much more clever school teacher. Yeah, he's a, well, he's a teacher, so he, he yeah. knows some things. Exactly, he can use history and deductive reasoning to uh, to assess their situation. Uh, so yeah, so basically, it features a story of Northerners being lured into a 
town. Yankees. Yankees, as they're called. Into uh, a apologize, we, we might actually uh, dip into we're some Mac, pretty Mac, bad southern, southern accents. accents here. Yes, sir, we will. Um, so in the opening scenes, Connie Mason, who's returning from Love Feast, she was actually driving the car in which they're driving, uh, which she promptly crashed into a brick wall. God oh. damn, Connie. So all the vehicles in the film were lent to production from a local dealership, and... They, basically, to fix this, they found an off-the-books mechanic to fix it before returning it, with none being the wiser. Um, so, Lux Interior of the Cramps described 2000 Maniacs as an all-time great because of all the sadism. The people who act in the movie actually live in the town where it was filmed. They look very inbred. There's a wonderful scene where they take the sexy girl and drop this 2,000-pound rock on her from 20 feet, and the whole town's out there watching with old ladies all looking like, what are we doing here? Which is true. So. Yep. The film starts with uh, two car cars of couples. There's like uh, the first car has four couples in it, and or four couples, four people, two couples. The second car has has one couple. That's our Connie Mason and, and William Kerwin, uh, and they're all heading down this highway. While there's two hicks, for lack of a better term, Southern folk, rednecks, hillbillies. Yeah, they're definitely uh, sons of the soil. Sure. Um, just uh, wearing their overalls and their straw hats and going, yeehaw, every yeah. time they do something that um, pleases them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're uh, basically one's on lookout for cars with uh, northern license plates, while the other one sneakily hides a, a road sign and puts up a detour sign. And this detours them into the town of Pleasant Valley, which is, celebrating a, which is having a centennial celebration of something that happened 100 years ago, which nobody stops to think, hey... A hundred years ago in the South, what was going on? Oh, yeah, the Civil War. Uh, as Kit was saying that the opening... This is the year 1965. Yes, yeah, yeah. So as Kit was saying, the uh, the opening song like is, was very off-putting. It's a song called The South Will Rise Again. South's um, gonna rise again. Yeah, that's the song sung by Herschel Gordon-Lewis, and it talks about, you know, there's a story you must know about a hundred years ago, blah, 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 and it goes on like that. Very catchy song. Uh, it does make bluegrass seem even more creepier than it normally is. <laughs> Robert E. Lee broke his knee or something. gun on his knee or some, something. Like some I think not. it's his musket on his knee or something. Oh, yeah, yeah broke his musket yeah. on his knee. Yep. Um, and they're greeted by all the townsfolk who actually the entire – the interesting thing about this film is it was shot in St. Cloud, Florida, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. It's not the only film to be shot in St. Cloud. Um uh, which at the time was a uh, like a, a like a rural suburb of Orlando, Florida, uh, which was yet before Disney World kind of t- overtook the whole area. Um, and so they're greeted by the townsfolk and the mayor, who tells them, "You're our guests of honor for our centennial celebration," and they won't even say what it is. There's a sea of stars and bars. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Confederate oh, yeah. flags, which well, is we get introduced to the mm-hmm. town a little where while the song is playing because it it plays for the. Uh, like there's an opening credit yeah. sequence where we get mm-hmm. the the whole credits, yeah. Um, and yeah, everybody's got their um, not only their stars and bars flags out, but they're mm-hmm. they also are all carrying around these little nooses. Yeah. Um, well, it opens with uh, and they even Billy they they lynch a cat. They lynch a cat, a black cat. A black cat. Yeah. Thankfully, we do not. It, it does not look like they actually harmed a cat whatsoever, but they imply that that's what happens off screen which you know is upsetting enough i think yeah. they mildly upset the cat based on the cat's uh expression as they put a noose around its neck yeah the cat's yeah. not happy with this development that's for yeah, sure. yeah yeah so clearly these are some bad hombres um but uh, yeah so the film the film was shot in saint cloud uh florida 
which is actually founded as a retirement community for Union soldiers after the American Civil War, which is kind of ironic due to it standing in for a Southern Confederate stronghold. Um, the only other films shot in St. Cloud, Florida were 1978's Barracuda, which also starred, which starred Wayne Crawford and also featured William Kerwin in a role. So he got to go back to St. Cloud. He just Cloud. loves that town. Yeah. And 1998's The Water Boy, starring Adam Sandler, Fariza Bach, and Kathy Bates. Ha! Huh. Yeah. And originally the film was going to be called 5,000 Maniacs, but when the filmmakers actually arrived in town, they decided to cut it back due to the smallish nature of the town. I'm not even sure there's 2,000 people there. Yeah. It seemed like a, a stretch. <laughs> 200 Maniacs, maybe. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and so as they're introduced to, by the mayor, the mayor, he basically says, you're going to stay for free for two days, and right away, John... It's mayor Buckman. Mayor Buckman, and we'll get into his, uh, the actor behind that uh, character as well later, um, but Mayor Buckman tells him, like, you're going to stay for two days at our local hotel, uh, and it'll be all for free, because you're our honored guest as we, like, get, go into this centennial celebration. Um, and going on about, like, Southern hospitality. Yeah. And the thing is, the first uh, the first couples to arrive are not our hero couples. They are, I think it's um, who is it? It's the the Millers, and the other couple. Who are they? Yeah, they're grist for the mill, basically. You know, yeah, we need, yeah. To, we need some kills. Yeah, the Millers, who were played by Shelby Livingston, uh, John Miller, and B Miller. Yeah, so B Miller was played by Shelby Livingston. Uh, her most notable work besides Two Thousand Maniacs was actually playing a moon doll in Doris Wishman's Nude on the Moon in nineteen sixty one. Um, and the husband, I don't have the name of... Oh, no, Jerome Eden uh, appears as John Miller. The husband, he had previously appeared in the Lewis films Daughter of the Sun, Blood Feast, and Belle Bear and Beautiful, and he would follow up 2000 Maniacs with Friedman's The Defilers and Lewis's Color Me Blood Red, which is actually the next one we're going to be uh, we're gonna be doing. Uh, he would finish his career in television appearing on the shows Cagney and Lacey and the forgotten 1980s live-action Superboy television show. Huh. Yeah. Um, so they both get quickly distracted by town, by a buxom town folk beauty and a, uh, a denim uh, yeah, rope belt-wearing stud. The town has these two honeypots. Yeah. Um, the, the lady's named Betsy Gunther. And yep. then the, uh, the fella, I just heard Harper, Harper. is all I know. And yeah. he's, he's, he has a rope belt. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, just like Jethro Bodine. Probably, I think this is before the Beverly Hillbillies as well. But yeah, he wears a rope belt and he has a denim top and denim pants. So he's in full-on Canadian tuxedo mode. Yeah. And he's like just caressing the, the blonde lady's hair like yeah. in the car. Like they're, they're just like. And they just go for it. The two couples are like. And the thing is like the couple who the couple who's like their friends. They're like, oh, we know them. They're not going to be coming home with their spouses tonight. And you're just like, what? They're a swinger couple, I guess. You know, it's the yeah. 60s. It's before the swinging era, though. Well, they, they were star- they were trailblazers. Sure. These, these two are. Well, they ain't blazing any trails after this movie. But yeah, the uh, the mayor's having a good time. Like they, laughing at everything. He's just like, um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I didn't say waiting for you. I said waiting on you. <laughs> and and just stuff like that where it's like, it's not clear where the joke is or what they're laughing at, but they yeah. laugh at everything. Well, they're definitely meant to be a... Um, Almost, Bad dinghy. You're killing the levels here, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, they're definitely meant to be like a parody of Southern. Well, like it's playing up the Southern caricature. And we'll actually talk about that more because this film was actually accused of, when it was released, of enforcing a negative 
stereotype of rural southern americans what is it what we call it hillbilly exploitation is there a term for that uh, or yeah exploitation exploitation or southern gothic if we want to get yeah literary i with it. i knew it as hillbilly horror in the in the early 2000s i remember like hillbilly uh horror R- yeah rue morgue uh i think rue morgue termed the the phrase hillbilly horror because they were talking Go on, sorry. No, oh, because just in discussion of like um, the hills have eyes, and at the at the time the movie that came out, um, Wrong Turn, the first one, which is quite good. They, there was a remake of it which I haven't seen, but I but I kind of want to, which goes you know, into to the hillbilliness of it all. You'd also say Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh yeah, for sure. Wasn't Wrong Turn like a massive straight to video franchise? After the first one, the first movie was theatrical and actually did quite well, and it was a great theater movie. It was there was excitement, there was scares, it was kind of disturbing, and then they did Wrong Turn Two, which starred Henry Rollins, and I actually watched that one. I was like, it's not as good. And then three, four, five came out right away, and then they rebooted it um, in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen. Um, but I mean, you you recently watched that movie on uh, folk horror. Yes, Say, this, uh, yeah, this is. This no, a, this is not folk horror. But it it bears some similarities, I'd say. You know, backwards people with old you, rural traditions. But that's that's not like. But folk horror ties into more like forgotten religions and and much more different things. Like this is not folk horror in that sense. This is hillbilly. I'd say hillbilly horror, exploitation for sure. Um, I mean, on the in the blu-ray box set of uh, all the herschel Gordon lewis films it is paired up with moonshine mountain which is another which is a straightforward exploitation film that yeah. herschel Gordon lewis did which was has been described as 2000 maniacs but without the blood um and there's actually like a short video essay on the blu-ray about actually not a lot of blood in this movie to be honest no not as much as as i mean it feels like blood feast had more but then again blood feast was like 20 minutes shorter so I think, or maybe even thirty minutes shorter. Like so, like I think that uh, Blood Feast probably like per capita has more blood, whereas this film doesn't. But this one is a bit more inventive. It's not just someone like cutting, like cutting up someone. Um, they really worked hard to figure out the gags in this one. So our characters are brought over to the hotel um, where everyone kind of settles in. Well, we find out Tom White is a hitchhiker. He doesn't yeah. actually know um, what's her face, Terry yeah. Terry Adams. Terry Adams, yeah. Um, and he's also on his way to a teacher's conference, we find out. Yes, in Atlanta, Georgia, because he's a hitchhiking school teacher. Because they, they, they get these people to stop, and they're like, you're our guest of honor. You're going to be here for two days. And it's, two days. It's like, two days? That's not convenient for anyone, just driving through. But, but they all kind of go with it, because it's like free vacation, free they food, do, yeah. free drink, and also buxom locals. Like, yeah, what else can you ask for? Um, so... So early on, um, well, then we get like they introduce um, the two the two uh, hillbillies that were doing yeah. the sign stuff, and that's Rufus Tate and, and Lester McDonald. Yep. Yeah. Um, actually, I have a note on the actor who plays Lester. Ben Moore plays Lester McDonald. He would go on to appear in Lewis's film Moonshine Mountain. No surprise. He also appeared in H.G. Uh, Lewis's Suburban Roulette. Um, and he also appeared in David F. Friedman's She Freak and the 1984 VHS slasher staple, The Mutilator. He's got a very uh, Tim Blake Nelson vibe to yeah. all that guy. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then uh, Rufus is really like, he's always trying to steal the show. Yeah, he's always uh, yeehawing. And, and very much overacting. And I'm, I'm not even sure he's Southern, really, but he's yeah. playing up that accent. No, it's, it's very hee-haw. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, God dang, we got us some good ones. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is the Mayor Buckman, who had like probably like the most natural southern accent he was actually played by uh i'm hoping i'm pronouncing this right talakias blank 
who was a um, who took a pseudonym of Jeffrey Allen to avoid issues with the Screen Actors Guild. Um, he would go on to appear in the H.G. Lewis films Moonshine Mountain, Something Weird, This Stuff Will Kill Ya, and Year of the Yahoo. Um, Blank was a theater actor from Illinois, and despite the fact that Blank was a Yankee, he was so good at performing different Southern dialects that he was cast exclusively as Southerners. So, like, and he would dip to different... It wasn't just, like, the kind of Southern that he plays in this. He could do Hollywood Southern, they call it. Yeah, he could do a Tennessee accent. He could do an Arkansas accent. He could go all around the South and get up, pick up the different different accents. I guess as a Midwesterner, you know, you get a bit of... You're close enough to that. Yeah, maybe. Swing, yeah. It blends with the Western accent. Well, I mean, coming from Chicago, you know, it's it's a bit... It's not the same thing. (laughs) Um... And pr- so pretty early on, we see the Millers get taken out. So uh, John Miller gets, or is it John Miller is his name? Yeah, John, John Miller. John Miller yeah. yeah, John Miller uh, gets taken out by Betsy. Um, and then B gets taken out by Harper. And Harper takes her into the woods. Although, what's the thing about, like, the whole thing's like, oh, we're, we're with the uh, tourism committee, and we're here to show you around the town. And John Miller's like, well, I guess you should first take me to Lover's Lane. Oh, yeah, I Just actually wrote it down. It Hold on. Thick. Yeah, as soon as he gets down there with the buxom Betsy Gunther. This here is Betsy Gunther. I'd like to take you out for a walk. They really play into it. Yeah, she's, she's flashing shoulder like crazy. Yeah, she's constantly yeah. Uh, pulling down her dress. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh, yeah, what did, where did I write it down here? Oh, damn it. Maybe I didn't. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. Um, so anyways, then B goes out with Harper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, and and oh. Har- Harper, like, takes her to this, like, secluded area and decides to show her his knife. And he's like, just feel it. Just feel how sharp it is. And she's like, why? And then he cuts her on the thumb. She's like, oh, you cut me. He's like, I'll fix it. I'll fix it. And he cuts her thumb off. And then he takes her to Mayor Buckman, who is also the town doctor. The, the look of delight on his face as he's cutting her thumb off, oh, too. It's just, like, a sheer joy and ecstasy while she's an adject here. And, like, the mayor keeps telling her, like, you gotta lie down. This requires surgery. And so it takes, like, Rufus and Lester and Harper and the mayor to, like, hold her down. And then, uh, is it Lester that gets the axe? Or is it uh, or is it Rufus? I think it was Lester. Yeah, Lester gets the axe. And cuts her arm off, and then the arm becomes the centerpiece for the barbecue that night. Yeah. She, she dies instantly. Like, she dies right there. Just to, just to backtrack a yeah. bit, she's, like, adamant about uh, making it back for the barbecue, and everybody's oh, yeah. having a laugh over this. Big old chuckle. Oh, you'll be there for the barbecue, don't you worry. We guarantee it. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of those kind of jokes going on here. Well, the, the point about the barbecue I wanted to make is that the area in which they filmed it, they there was no power there for the lights because they were trying to do like they didn't want to shoot day for night. They were trying to go bigger and better. So the the power company, free of charge to the filmmakers, strung up power lines for them to power their lights off of. This is no mean feat, so they could light up the barbecue scene. Uh, and then we go to the barbecue scene where everyone's kind of like sitting around this arm. Well, it's it's a bee's arm. Quite clearly spit. an arm too. They don't yeah. they don't try to dress it up. There's no like um, yeah. sauce or seasoning on there. Mm-hmm. There's no. And, like, the mayor at a certain point even says, like, it's more ceremonial than anything. We're not really going to... Yeah, nobody's eating it. No, no, no. This arm is burnt to a crisp. <laughs> yeah. but not uh, at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it's... Is it at this time when... Oh, yeah, we missed some stuff. So, basically, uh, John White is, like, starting to feel there's something rough about the town. Because he needed to make a phone call to... Or send a wire to the... Um, 
to the convention to let him know he's going to be a couple days late, but when he tried making a long-distance phone call, the hotel doesn't allow it. When he tried to do a wire, they don't allow it either, despite the fact the mayor said it. So he went out and found a payphone, which, fun fact, is actually the only payphone in the entire town of St. Cloud at this time. And he makes a call, and the call, he thinks, goes through to the hotel manager, but it turns out it's actually going to the mayor, and the mayor is impersonating. We don't hear the mayor impersonating, which I wanted to hear, like, what a the mayor impersonating the hotel manager would have sounded like, but basically like the mayor says like, oh yeah, I'll take this note down and I'll get it to those people. And then he turns the note into a paper airplane, paper airplane, which he then burns and then throws it onto the ground and then steps on. Yeah. Which like, why, why do the airplane? Well, right. he's laughing the whole time. <laughs> why did he even write it down? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why did he write it down? Yeah. A lot of the weird stuff. So like John has actually gone off by himself and then, uh, so, uh, is it Terry Adams is her name? Yeah, Terry Adams. Terry Adams. Yeah. Is she gets the, taken to the barbecue. She's at the barbecue by herself. John comes up behind her and says, like, hey, I got to show you something. And he shows her the plaque that explains that the Union soldiers massacred this town and that the town is this plaque, like, is there to commemorate the bloody vengeance that the the Confederate, that the townspeople will eventually take on the Northerners. Even even before then, we should give uh, Tom some credit. I think back in the, back at the hotel, he's like, hey, listen. They said it's a hundred year anniversary of something. Do you know what happened here a hundred years ago? He's saying what yeah. we're all thinking. Like he's the it's only. It's the Civil War. <laughs> then they're like, all waving would... Confederate flags. Why would Southerners want Yankees to be their guests of honor? Does it make any sense? And she's like, Oh, I don't know. They're being nice to us. Yeah, it's that Southern kind of nice where it's like we'll be polite and genteel while we stab you in the back. Southern hospitality. Sure, there's a Leonard Skinner song about that or something. Um, it's not a ludicrous song about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then from there, we are at. Uh, so at this point, old uh, John Miller is now. Oh, it's Tom White is his name. I keep calling him John White. Um, John Miller is now getting wasted with Betsy, and oh, this, he's he's drinking that White Lightning. Yeah, straight from the bottle, straight from the jug, um, and. Basically, she convinced him, like, hey, we're going to go have a horse race. It's tradition. It's for the centennial. And you'll and he's like, I can't ride a horse. Like, oh, don't worry. In this kind of horse race, you don't need to know how to ride a horse. And he's all passed out, drunk. And so the townsfolk then tie each of his limbs to a different horse. And it's clear they're going to, like, have the horses rip him apart. Yeah. But then they're like, it won't be any fun if he's not awake to know what's happening. So they, like, splash some water on his face, wake him up, and explain to him... This is going to be a great horse race. Ha ha ha. You're going to ride all four horses. But, I mean, he's not. No. He just gets dragged by the horse. He doesn't ride any of the horses. No. So. No. And so he gets ripped to shreds. And so the townsfolk are, again, happy with this. Um, they are. But then you, you pointed out there's that weird, like, sort of tableau where they're just yeah. kind of milling around afterwards. Like, uh, have we gone too far here? I don't know. That is that is a motif <laughs> that goes on where it's with which the filmmakers admitted, which is like we wanted the, them to get really, really excited by the violence, and then kind of be horrified by what they had done themselves. It, it gets awkward. Yeah, like that's the whole thing. It's like you know, it's kind of like you know, if you go to an orgy at the you know, it's it's like hey, this is gonna be great. It's gonna be good. And then the next morning, you're all even like kind of looking at each other like, I saw some things. <laughs> um, These are maniacs, Graham. They should just exactly. be all about it. Mm-hmm. So then it's the next day, and our second couple are wondering where their friends the Millers are. 
and they both kind of joke like, "Did you see him with her? And did you see her with him? I don't think they came home together." They they were also we should point out urged to go to bed uh, early. Oh yeah, they so, were like, "Oh, we got a big day planned for you. You're gonna want to get all the sleep you can." P- people are constantly talking like this. Yeah, very suggestively loud. Uh, and then it turns out they're gonna split up this couple. The husband is gonna go into the gonna go to the barrel roll, and the woman is gonna go to the the rock guessing game or something the tipping rock yes uh so the barrel roll is well here they they initially have a problem because this couple unlike the previous couple uh are in love with each other and don't want to be apart and would rather experience the town together yeah but then betsy and harper just are like no we're splitting you up no you wouldn't want to ruin our centennial now would you and they're like i guess we won't that's the logic that they're always using yeah and so we go to the barrel roll which is what you think it is. They're going to put the husband in the barrel, but they're going to actually, like, they convince him to get through it. Like, first of all, we're just going to roll the barrel down the hill. It's like, okay, that sounds fine. It's like, but first you got to crawl through the barrel. He's like, I don't want to do crawl that. crawl through the barrel. Just do it. Just do it. Just crawl through the barrel. And so they... He, <laughs> they, they call him a pussy because <laughs> he won't do it. <laughs> I know. It's hilarious. Um, and then he's, and he's so, like, all right. And he starts to do it, but then they, like, st- like, get him stuck in the middle of the barrel and they like hammer in nails and then they roll this barrel with nails in it down the hill and he basically succumbs from his injuries. Now, the interesting thing about this scene is that Herschel Gordon Lewis initially wanted the actor to roll down the hill entirely in the barrel, like for real. And the actor was like, no, it's too dangerous. And Herschel Gordon Lewis is like, well, let me do it and I'll show you. So Herschel Gordon Lewis rolled down the hill in the barrel and after that he was like, yeah, you're not getting in that barrel. (laughs) They used the dummy after that. They should have filmed the Herschel Gordon Lewis going down on the barrel. Just, ah, Get him in the clothes. I don't think they actually filmed it because he's also the camera operator. Again, ah. this was a this was a two man for the most part. Like there was a film crew, uh, and they were made up of novices. But uh, but again, it was Herschel Gordon Lewis directing and camera operating, and David F. Friedman producing and uh, the sound recording. Um, you do notice some of the framing is like, oh, that's just not correct it's a little it's weird just, just a close-up of the top of that man's face it's also a little odd the um i'm not sure how this because i don't know if they shot this in four by three or if it was shot in, i think it was, it was shot in 35 though for sure it was shot in 35 because Herschel gordon lewis owned his own 35 camera but um so it wouldn't be some awkward framing it would be awkward shooting but um what was i going to say but they did have a, a small crew to help them out made up of novices and they kind of established early on that if any of their crew members had a suggestion or had a point about what they were shooting, they would actually listen to that point and assess it. And they said that in the end, like that actually helped them out so much because there were crew members that could see issues coming or could see a better way of doing things that they wouldn't have thought of on their own. So in the end, they're like, yeah, it like really benefited from us to listen to our crew despite them being novices. And he's like, we didn't take all the suggestions or all of their advice, but it was good to have that as a sounding board. So... Uh, then from the barrel roll, we go to rock tipping. The tippy rock or yeah, whatever they which call is, it. Which is kind of like a dunk tank, but wear it with a rock. The rock that falls from above you. Yeah, instead of being dunked yeah. into a tank of sitting on a little thing mm-hmm. and, and somebody hits a thing and then you fall into the tank, yeah. they have, you're the basically the water and the rock is the person and the rock gets dunked into you. The rock gets dunked into you. <laughs> In Soviet Russia. <laughs> you don't dunk rocks. Rocks dunk you. Wah, 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 wah. Um, yes, so, but um, Beverly is even less inclined yeah. to uh, participate in well, this. Well, because instantly it's like, hey, there's a big rock up there and we're supposed to throw things at a target to make the rock fall and you want me to lie underneath the rock? Like, no. 
And and I think the mayor keeps on, oh, we're just not going to hit it. It's just for show. Yeah. Um, so, but, but they want still, it'd be like, no, no, yeah, yeah. Do that. no, they tie her to a platform. They put her underneath the rock. The rock was actually made out of paper mache and weighed about 300 pounds in reality. Yikes. Yeah. And, um, so then the, is it Rufus or, or Lester? Who's just like, I got one of them newfangled softballs. That'd be, that'd be Rufus. Yeah. Rufus is like, we're going to throw softballs at this, at this target. Doggone it. This is going to be the best damn centennial anybody ever had. And it kind of was for a lot of the town. Yeah, they're having a great time. Yeah, but uh, the funny thing is, in reality, the first time someone threw a softball at that target, it actually missed the target, sailed into the parking lot, and smashed into a brand new Cadillac, <laughs> which was not a crew member's. So, but David Friedman actually tracked down the woman and apologized for future. And she's like, "Oh my God! Like this is my husband's new car, and it's only a week old." And he's like, "We'll take care of it." So they actually like took it to that same off the books mechanic who like repaired the car <laughs> but it's like in the end i think the uh, the cost of fixing the car was like 25 dollars, which is like insane considering like you do anything with a card now it's like that's two grand pal just cough it up oh you you scratch the uh the back uh hood the the back trunk well that's gonna be two thousand dollars to fix Ugh, they get us everywhere these days um so she's lying under the rock, and then eventually, yes, someone throws a softball. It hits the target, and the, the rock The townspeople falls. in general are terrible shots, though. Yeah. And so later on that morning, uh, we have Tom and Tracy Terry. Well, we, we still, we again get the weird kind of thing where all the ladies around, like the old ladies are around the... Uh, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a slow, long take of um, the, the, the reactions of the townsfolk spectators, and it's a very mixed uh, reception. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because like they're like kind of like in, when they're in the heat of the moment, they're like yeah, and then they're kind of like little like oh god, what have we done? Which is kind of which actually makes the scene a bit more disturbing because oh, they're sure, actually yeah. aware that what they're doing is like wrong. Never Rufus or Lester. Uh, but then you see the reactions get progressively more positive. Yeah, because they're the like oh yeah, this is what we're supposed to be doing. Let's get back into yeah. it and let's uh, let's get back to. To, you know, squishing people. And all Ruf, Rufus and Lester, who I, I don't know if we mentioned, they're actually the, um, they were nominated the co-chairs of the uh, Centennial. Oh, yeah, what was it? Like, one was, like, the the executive chair, and the other one was the... Vice chair? Something, something like that? Something, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they get to decide on the weekend's festivities, and they're the ones organizing all these um, pranks, I guess you'd call them. I don't know. <laughs> death pranks so back at the hotel at this point tom and is it tracy or terry it's tracy uh, uh terry, terry terry adams terry terry and tom both realize something's wrong we gotta get out of here but they can't get out because they they posted a guitar player in front of their door yes they did that uh, guy plucking yeah. a guitar so tom like he sneaks from one window over to tracy's at terry's and takes the stick that they were using to like prop it open and then she lures in the guitar player, and he hits him over the head with the, the with the log and knocks him out cold. Yeah, she, she pretends there's something wrong with her water. Yeah, can you He's turn, like, oh, can't turn off the water. Gales, I reckon I could. Shabadadoo. Um, and then yeah, it does that film thing that I love, where you get knocked out instantly. It's basically like yeah. goats fainting, mm -hmm. which I guess is kind of like yeah, it'd be a shock getting hit in the back of your head. Uh, so ghosts easily uh, faint whenever they're shocked; they just peel over, right yeah. over. So that seems to be what's happening here. Yeah, and it doesn't cause brain damage or anything. Because like, if you get knocked out from a blow to the head, that's brain damage. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be a serious knock. Yeah, like you can get a knock in the head and get a concussion and still and like 
yeah, so it'd be rough. So they now uh, realize they got to get out of town, but they need their car. So they realize, hmm, let's talk to that little shit, Billy. Well, first they uh, they have to sneak out of the hotel where uh, I believe um, our old friend Harper with the rope belt is guarding downstairs. Oh, yeah. And he sees them kind of run off and he has to give chase. And they uh, they go into what is clearly just a shallow, like, oh, bog. Right. Yeah. yeah. But then uh, Tom is like, it's quicksand. Get out of there. Yeah, he pulls it's her out. Quicksand. Yeah, because because uh, Terry steps in it and Tom pulls her out. And then Harper comes by and goes straight into the quicksand and down. And he's underneath. And then we get a, an extended sequence of Connie washing her leg off. And yeah. <laughs> With some like sexy music, too. Yeah. Well, I think it was supposed to show in a track because like the whole thing is like these are supposed to be our heroes. And it's so awkward. they make a whole point of like, he's not with me. I just picked him up on the highway. You don't see anything above the knee, you know. She's she's holding her dress very, uh, yeah, delicately. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very safe for a Herschel Gordon Lewis film, considering his early earlier nudie cuties. Yeah. Um, uh, but she needs clean legs. Yeah, she's gotta and have I, them clean legs. And I think it was just it was more to show Tom falling for it, being like, oh, she has legs. <laughs> Tom is not washing his legs, by the way. No, he's washing her her shoes though. Um, and so then they rush off. This is where they meet the little shit Billy. And we call him a little shit because he is. He's just southern and, you know, he lynches cats. He's got, yeah, he's got like bleach blonde hair. Bleach blonde hair. He was the the, mm-hmm. the main kid lynching cats in the first one. Yeah. They approach so he, him and he's like, what y'all want, Yankee? He, he always walks around swinging a little noose as well. <laughs> like just, just one of the most worst like things you could do. Um, and so he, basically Tom... They bribe him with with fake candy. candy. We have a box of candy in the back of that truck, of that car. And so he takes him over and then there's Well, at first they're like, you could share it with all your friends. And he's like, I ain't going to share it with any of my friends. It's all for me. (laughs) And so then they go to the car where Billy's in the front seat, like turning the wheel, being like, I want to drive. I want to drive. And they're like, can you? Yes. But yeah, like they're looking for the keys, but uh, they're trying to convince Billy to retrieve the keys and an exchange. Because the candy at this point is not enough. They have to let Billy drive because Billy's uh, dad will not let him drive. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, appropriately enough because mm. he's eight years old. Yeah. I do love how they keep conning this little, you know, Confederate kid by saying, like, there's candy in the trunk. I'll let you drive if you bring the keys. And then Billy wants to, at this point, the townsfolk realize, oh, they're not in the hotel. We got to get these last two uh, Yankees to kill. And. They like start coming, and that's when like everyone, like the Tom, Terry, and Billy hear them coming. And Billy's like, "I want to go see what's going on." And and uh, they, they convince him like, though. Yeah, they're just Tom says. Tom says like, "Listen, I'll let you go on drive on the highway where you can go seventy five miles per hour." And he goes seventy five mile an hour. Yeah. No, he goes seventy miles per hour. Hot doggy. Hot doggy. <laughs> um, he jumps in the back, and then our our heroes escape. And the uh, the townsfolk give chase in a very very old truck. It's it's very I don't know. There's a I forget which Simpsons episode it is. Oh, it's the it's the uh, elixir episode. Yeah, yeah. They're 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 getting run out of town by the hillbillies. Yeah, this is like a straight up moonshine truck. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that's the one where where it's like, wow, they won't stop chasing us. And Grandpa Simpson's like, turn off the the banjo music, and they turn off the banjo music. Yeah. And the hillbillies have to stop chasing them. Yeah, yeah. But in in this one. They do they not re- turn off the banjo no, music. They, and reach, the hillbillies they reach the town limits. But the interesting thing, the story behind that truck is it's very old and it could only start by going forward by put they had people had to push it to get it going. 
So you had to get the wheels turning and everything in order for it to, to turn over. Well, um, that's, that's why it was in Lister's Garage. Garage. Oh, yeah, that's how Billy described <laughs> that. The Garage. And you're like, Garage. Heard garage. I've heard, gar- like, garage. Um, but... Uh, but the but the the interesting thing is that while well, it took forever, like it was so hard to get the truck to go forward, it could reverse really well, as we saw it reverse out of those that tall grass. So Tom and Terry get to the tall get to like the edge of town, and they just ditch Billy right away, and he's shaking his fists and he's, like, he's so angry. <laughs> they just pluck him out of the car and put him down. He's like damn Yankees, and then, I didn't even get my candy. Yeah, and then uh, and then the townsfolk take Billy back because they realize oh they've gone to the highway and we can't pursue them there. And uh, they go back to the town where... Well, it's funny because before um, this whole chase happens, they're discussing like, oh, well, we're, yeah, I guess we're going to... They're discussing how they're going to kill the last two. Yeah. And it's going to involve uh, some a gauntlet of knives and apparently an axe-throwing competition. And none of these two things happen. Yeah. I feel like that's a cardinal sin. You can't mention some gruesome axe happening and then just not eh. show them. Eh. It's just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, so, at this point, the townsfolk are back in their town, like, taking down all the all the Confederate flags and the big banner saying, like, you know, this still was the best centennial, even though it's the first centennial, like, we've had. And, and like, everyone's like, yeah, it was a good time. And then Billy's like, it wasn't good for me. I didn't get any candy. I didn't get to drive a car. I'm going to go catch a cat. And he's just like, ah, <laughs> you crazy kid. Um, they bring Harper out of, Harper walks out of the, uh, the quicksand and they all kind of like walk into like a scenario. Well, that's, that's after actually, because, um, it, the movie goes on a little longer than it yeah. should because, uh, once, uh, what's their two faces get away, they go to the nearest town. They talk to the sheriff. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, uh, back at, back at, uh, Pleasant Valley, mm-hmm. um, I think Rufus is like, oh, gosh, boss, what if they get out and they talk to a local sheriff or oh, yeah, a, a state trooper? yeah, the wind up in the bin. And they'll, they'll wind up in the loony bin, and shucks, we're, what are they going to find if they look for us here anyway? Yeah. Which is, you know, our first indication that things might be a bit uh, supernatural. So they go to the local authorities, and the local authority, the cop says, like, there's no town called Pleasant Valley. Like, you're, like, we got, got to get you a breathalator test. A breathalator. Not breathalyzer. Sometimes words evolve, kids. Um, so he does, and then they go back to where the turnoff to the town was, but they couldn't find it. However, they did find their tire track in mysteriously in the grass and so they they walk down to try and see if they can find the town they can't find anything there's only the plaque left behind but they don't see the plaque and then the cop says like well to be honest there was a town here a hundred years ago that was wiped out by union soldiers called pleasant valley and there's been rumors about like spooky things going on so that's why i didn't i didn't want to tell you that but that's why i didn't throw you in the loony bin and that's why i had to give you the breath later but uh, I just wanted to let you know that. And then they walk away, and then the plaque fades away. It does. And yeah. still the movie's not done. Yeah, still this, we is when need they, a... this is when they go and they bring Harper out of the quicksand. This is when, well, actually, is that happen, or do we get to the state line, and then... Oh, yeah, the state line Tom's stuff. like, oh, I guess this is it for me. I'll just get out and get my suitcase. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so Harper comes out, they fade away, but then our couple are driving to the state line. They get to the state line, which in reality was not a state line. It was just a place where the the pavement changed. Oh, I forget when they first smooched, but they they did have a good, oh, yeah, they, good old yeah. smooch earlier in the movie when there was some danger. Yeah, I think that's when they were like getting out of town just before they like hot like drove away. Um, so the love love interest has been established, but Tom's like, I gotta take off. I'm gonna go. You know, I gotta get to that teachers convention in Atlanta. In Atlanta, <laughs> I would get out of the south at that point. 
Uh, and she's like, no, you're going to ride with me. And I want to make sure if anything else happens that I'm there, you know, that, you, that we're together. And they're like, oh. And he's like, but this wasn't a dream. And he reaches into the back and he pulls out Billy's little noose, which they then hang from the rearview mirror. <laughs> Creepy. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, I would throwing that out. Throw it out. Yeah. And then they drive off. And we have credits. A really nice credit sequence where they go back and show the entire town. All You've the just seen. Yeah. They did one of those. And that was 2000 Maniacs. So, to get into some of the behind the scenes and also cultural perspective on this film. Well, by dinghy. That yeah. was 2000 Maniacs. Great. So, the hotel they, they, they filmed in also housed the actors and crew during the filming. It had the oldest working telephone system in the USA, including the original switchboard, which we see in the film. Uh, while it opened strong in a drive-in in Michigan, the film actually didn't do that well financially in the United States, like especially compared to, well, it did well, but it didn't do as well as Blood Feast. However, it did do very well in Canada, where it was incredibly successful, and it actually passed the notorious Canadian film censors without any cuts. It's not that gory, yeah, to be honest with you. But Canadian censor, like Ontario censors, I should say, because every province has its own, cen- like, uh, not censorship, but film classification bureau. Um... As the arm chopping off scene, the thumb is yeah. pretty gross. Yeah, I mean that's the sort of stuff that the Ontario's like ratings board would go go nuts over. Uh, in fact, the first time with Blood Feast when they sent it to Canada, it didn't come back. And when Herschel Gordon Lewis reached out to them like, "Hey, can you send a print back?" The Ontario government was like, "No, we destroyed it. Yeah, we, we burnt that. Yeah, it's nuts." Um, so. But while the film didn't do as well financially as Blood Feast, it did establish Lewis and Friedman as people who knew how to make a professional film. Because, again, earlier people thought that Blood Feast was just a fluke because a lot of it was pointing a camera and letting it sit there while stuff happened. Um, It was the most elaborately made film in the exploitation genre up until that point. Uh, The the telephone booth, which I already explained, was the only telephone booth in town. Uh, And we... So the entire film uh, for... For the entire time they were shooting, the sound recording equipment and the camera were actually both powered by a single car battery. Um, well, doggone it. Yeah. And uh, the town actually donated a construction crane to the filmmakers to use for crane shots, which we've seen the, uh, the opening scenes of them arriving in town. Uh, then decades after... So now we're going to get into a bit of the cultural perspective on this. So decades after its initial release, the film has been critically examined for its othering of Southerners and its context in the 1960s civil rights movement. In the book Framing the South, Hollywood Television and Race During the Civil Rights Struggle, author Allison Graham, hey, that's my name, argues that during the civil rights movement, American television opted for a less than realistic depiction of white Southerners than the television news programs of the day. In fact, according to Graham, uh, American films that tried to discuss race relations were commercial failures. Lewis's plotline in 2000 Maniacs does what uh, does more traditional does more than what traditional media could not do. Uh, it creates monsters out of those who live in the South. By focusing on the literal ghosts of a violent and vengeful Confederacy, Lewis is able to make implicit claims that the ghosts of the Confederacy are still haunting the South a hundred years after the Civil War. And it played on the anxieties of the people and the rest of the United States at the time. Southern man better watch your head. I think that's our closing song. <laughs> um, Don't for... I'm not going to do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, speaking of music, the music in the film performed by the, by the Pleasant Valley Boys, um, Lewis went out of his way to create the image of a twisted, sadistic banjo-picking episode of Hee Haw by having the band perform their songs during the murders and the music contributes to the overall feeling of the film in that it gives the film a strange feel. Viewers don't know whether they are watching the Beverly Hillbillies or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, yeah, most viewers can figure it out, I think. 
Yeah, but it's still it's it's kind of weird because you're like, oh, this kind of seems like if you didn't know what you were watching coming. No, I know, really, I know. You wouldn't, I, you wouldn't I be sure. Um, although the film was released in the most in the midst of the American Civil Rights Movement, uh, there is no mention of race relations in the South or of the segregated South. In addition, there are no African American characters in the film at all. By focusing on the centra- centennial celebration of Pleasant Valley and the destruction by Union troops, Lewis is able to make implicit claims about the South in Two Thousand Maniacs. The redneck ghosts of the Confederacy's ritualistic acts of re- revenge represent the South's obstinate refusal to desegregate the South during the Civil Rights Movement. It is through the blood and gore of the film that Lewis illustrates the anxieties that the rest of the nation had in terms of their relationship with the South. Lewis plays on the South's history of lynching people and other violence not sanctioned by the state, the South's xenophobia and primitivism, and the South's apparently unresolved regional conflicts with their northern neighbors. 2000 Maniacs plays on the northerner urbanite's fear, primal fear of being trapped in a town full of murderous rednecks. Whew. So yeah, that's the cultural thing. Um, and that's that's all my uh, my notes on the film, really. Um, so yeah. Phil, what are your final thoughts on 2000 Maniacs? I really enjoy this one. Yeah, it's fun, right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's As much as I love Blood Feast for its gnarliness, this yeah. is definitely a step up in terms of filmmaking and oh, storytelling. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it does drag a little bit of time, as yeah. Kit mentioned, but... Mm-hmm. Well, like this could have, you know, been a tight 70, 75 minutes, but you know what? Yeah. That's it's, okay. We would have lost some of the charm. We would have, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any other final thoughts? Not really, no. Cool. Kit, what are your final thoughts on 2000 Maniacs? Uh, well, I, I also enjoyed it. I uh, I wasn't as big on uh, Blood Feast as you two were, uh, but this uh, I, I did enjoy. Um, I mean, the soundtrack is so good. And it, it, it like it sets the tone right away. Also, just like the perversity of the characters the over the topness of everything the the silly accents the overacting it's just fun it's a good campy film like they uh we were watching an interview with uh with a uh, herschel uh, gordon lewis yes hgl hgl and uh, john waters and they were just talking about how they they weren't trying to you know make a serious film or make a statement or anything they're just having fun basically making a campy yeah. uh thing mm-hmm. and it, it is it's a good time yeah, it's very fun. Like and it's there's another no more fun way to watch people being like brutally murdered by xenophobic uh, Southerners than in Two Thousand Maniacs. Yeah, I I would agree, yeah. and uh, I like it just has some of that kind of midsummer uh, vibe to it oh, a yeah. little bit. Yeah, uh, that's why I was uh, comparing it to the folk horror. Uh, yeah, just- Midsummer. Um, it's interesting. I can't remember if Midsummer actually Midsummer does does it come into? I mean, it's got a bit. Of, yeah, it does come into. Um, into the folk horror doc a little bit. Yeah, Phil? Uh, no, I thought you were trying to determine whether or not it was folk horror. But... Oh, it's definitely, Midsummer yeah. definitely is folk horror. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then, and, and like, you can see, like, just going into, like, a different culture. Um, so, yeah, any other final thoughts, Kit? Uh, no, no, uh, I guess not. Uh, just, uh, it's a fun film. Go check it out. Cool, yeah. Um, my final thoughts are, it's, like you were saying, it's a fun film. I really enjoy this one. Um... Yeah, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, like, he, he just had a certain way, and David Friedman, of course, because I have seen a bunch of the Herschel Gordon-Lewis films that David Friedman wasn't involved in, and some of them I like quite a bit, some of them I don't like quite a bit. I definitely think it was the combination of the two, because David Friedman, as we'll discuss in the next episode, he was constantly pushing, we need better production value, we need to be more artistic, and Herschel Gordon-Lewis was like, no, this is a business, we need to be more, commer- we need to be more, not commercial, but just more, make it more like a, a, an assembly plant. 
But um, but yeah, I really dig this film. I enjoy it quite a bit. I think the humor still lands. I think it's still very watchable, especially in these trying times coming after, you know, 2020 and all that stuff. It's got um, some great... The color really pops. I mean, it, it also yeah. popped in uh, Blood Feast as well, yeah. but... Well, they, they shot, you know, 35 mil early 60s. So the early, those early the 60s, like, film stocks were just so saturated with color, and it looks so good. Uh, unfortunately, on the Arrow Blu-ray release, they have had to, like, splice in some... Uh, SVHS footage uh, where they were yeah it was kind of jarring yeah the film print like I I think the print they're using probably was from the something weird archive and uh, and like it's it's an old print and it's a it's a theatrical release print because there are still cigarette burns burned into this print so it was one of those things where it probably wasn't it it was probably falling apart while they were scanning it Uh, so thankfully they did scan it so we have a nice HD version to watch Um, but yeah I highly enjoy it highly recommend it um, so next week, we're going to be going on to my personal favorite of the Blood Trilogy, which is Color Me Blood Red, which dips into one of my favorite, favorite, favorite sub, sub, sub genres, beaten exploitation. <laughs> oh, wow, okay. It's, it's a very small subgenre, but I really like it. Yeehaw, daddy-o. All right, so for Death by Video. I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And I've been Graham saying, keep watching amazing movies. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. There's a story you should know from a hundred years ago And a hundred years we've waited now to tell Now the Yankees come along and they'll listen to this song And they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell And they'll quake in fear to hear this rebel yell Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again Robert E. Lee broke his musket on his knee and a thousand pieces shattered on the ground. But he looked up then and he gathered up his men and from his lips there came an awful sound. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Stonewall took a gun and he made the Yankees run, but he took a fatal bullet in the chest. As he fell down dead, old Stonewall said, I'm a-giving you a dying man's request. I'm a-giving you a dying man's request. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Stewart spurred his horse and the Yankees ran, of course, but there wasn't any powder for his gun. So he said to his boys, let's make a lot of noise and we'll charge again and make them Yankees run. And we'll charge again and make them Yankees run. Yeah! Oh, the South's gonna rise again. Yeah! Oh, the 
South's gonna rise again. Robert E. Lee broke his musket on his knee and a thousand pieces shattered on the ground. But he looked up then and he gathered up his men and from his lips there came an awful sound. And from his lips there came an awful sound. Yeah! Oh, the sound's gonna rise again. Yeah! Oh, the sound's gonna rise again. 